Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. It is a true pleasure to be able to talk to you today. Over the next couple of minutes, I hope to share with you some of the most profound and moving ideas of yoga philosophy. And to do that, I want to tell you a little story. I'm going to take you back in time to the year 3800 BCE, thereabouts, to a place known as the Indus Sarasvati Valley, what is today modern-day Pakistan. Now, in this region, there were a group, groups of philosophers that were intensely curious about the natural world around them. They created very sophisticated techniques in astronomy, astrology, mathematics, and logic. And they used these techniques to, over time, develop a very sophisticated ritual tradition. This is known as Vedic India. And in Vedic India, the priest known as the Brahmins had had developed this uh, ritual technology in order to more harmoniously interact with the forces of nature around them. They personified these forces of nature as gods and goddesses. So there was Vayu, the god of the wind. There was Varuna, the mysterious god of the ocean. Agni, god of the fire. And Surya, god of the sun. Uh, And like that, they created a very vast pantheon of gods and goddesses. Now, originally, the intent was to use ritual to cajole those gods and goddesses into helping them live a better life. So they were interested in uh, material welfare, in health, in um, good weather, so the crops would grow, that kind of thing. But before long, some of these philosophers started to question if there was more to life than just cattle and winning wars against enemy tribes, you know. Um, And much like today, people are starting to ask if there's more to life than bank balances and climbing the corporate ladder. So in ancient India, these philosophers went on an even deeper quest to figure out the meaning of life. And here are a few things that they discovered. This is known as the Upanishadic age in India. Um, And it's a time that is marked by an intense spiritual philosophy, a philosophy aimed at decoding what the human life was for. It was a philosophy oriented around finding a meaningful way to live. Um, And here are a few key takeaways. So the first is these Upanishadic seers known as rishis, uh, these sages, discovered that every natural force that exists out there in the world has its corresponding force in your body. So while there was Bayu, the god of the wind, there were also winds in your body. There was the breath. And there were several other winds too, like burping, farting, coughing, and coming, and all these movements in your body that the ancient Indians called Bayus or winds. Now there was Agni, the literal fire that you would use in a ritual to burn up offerings. But there was also the fire in your belly that you use to digest food. Now, fire has a very transformative quality. It takes matter and turns it into spirit. And so if there are fires in the world outside, 
surely the fire in the world inside, the digestive fire, was equally spiritual. When your digestive fire was strong, you felt um, full of energy, you felt uh, vitality, and you felt motivated. When your digestive fire was weak, you were maybe a little more low energy, a little less motivated. Now, just like this, the ancient Indian philosophers were starting to make connections, or what today we might call correspondences in the magical community, between natural forces and inner forces. So the key takeaway here is that everything that goes on in the universe also goes on in the human body. We are the microcosm. And so it makes more sense to study the inner world than it does to study the outside world. Um, we have a better access to the forces in our body. Um, and through them, we can come to understand the forces in nature at large. So naturally, these early philosophers turned their um, quest inward. They started to look inside for the answers. The second takeaway is that after studying nature extensively, the one thing that Indian scientists in the Vedic era discovered is that everything is always changing. Nature is in a state of flux. Everything decays, everything dies, nothing stays the same for very long. So generally there are three processes in nature. The first one is generation. Things come into existence. Um, the next thing is maintenance. After coming into existence, they remain in existence for a time. And then there is destruction. Inevitably, all things dissolve back into where they once came from. Things come from nothing, they go back into nothing. You know? So there's a, there's a process in nature. That G, generation, O, operation, and D, destruction, the three processes of nature is what the early Indians labeled God, generation, operation, destruction. So naturally they saw God as these three functions of nature. That was one of the first things they discovered. But naturally they wondered if everything is changing, maybe there is something that doesn't change. And it's valuable to find this eternal, impermeable, unchanging thing. After all, as the Buddha would many years later point out, the reason we suffer is because we cling on to things, expecting them to stay the same. And yet the one law of life is that all things change. Decay and dissolution is the very nature of the material world. And so we suffer if we pretend like things are going to last forever when they really don't. If we think our bodies are always going to be young and beautiful, well, we got another thing coming, you know. Um, one day we might be a king and a queen. The next day we're a pauper. There was always this kind of flux in nature. So naturally you start asking the question, is there something that doesn't change? So to answer this question, the ancient Indian philosophers developed a very sophisticated system that today we call meditation. What is meditation? I'm going to propose to you an explanation. Meditation is when someone asks the question, what happens after death, and then tries to find the answer scientifically. So when you do science um, and you want to study something, one of the things that you do is you um, perform an experiment. You know, you try to isolate some variables and you try to experiment with those variables to see if it can teach you anything about nature. So what are the variables about death? One thing is that the body is completely still. 
Corpses generally don't move. They're very still. The second thing is that the mind presumably has stopped. You know, the body stopped, the mind also has stopped. The corpse doesn't really express itself, doesn't really talk. Another thing a corpse doesn't do is breathe. A corpse um, is breathless. So stillness of body, stillness of mind, stillness of breath. Hmm. Does that sound familiar? That's meditation. I want to suggest that the earliest form of meditation that sprang up in this um, Vedic era of ancient India was actually a scientific experiment to replicate the variables of death in order to figure out what there was after life. So naturally, the ancient yogis started to perfect this technique, how to sit still, how to control the breath or more accurately, how to control the vital energy or prana of the body. And most importantly, how to still the mind. If you are able to do these three things, if you can bring your body into stillness, if you can bring your mind into stillness, and if you can quiet the breath, you will discover what they discover. So science gives you a method. It tells you that anywhere, anytime, any place, if you perform the method correctly, you should get the same results. Hence, yoga is a science. Yoga is the science of studying what is inside you, beyond your mind, beyond your body. And so what did we discover? Well, first I should say, don't take my word for it. Yoga doesn't like dogma. Yoga doesn't want to fill your head with concepts or ideas. Because as Jesus would say later, man does not live by bread alone. Well, neither does she live by concepts. Concepts alone won't satisfy you. So I could sit here all night and tell you that you are the eternal soul. I could tell you that you are not the mind, so you shouldn't fear um, the death of the ego. You are not the body, so you shouldn't fear disease or death. I could tell you these things. I could tell you these things all night. Um, and maybe you'll believe me. But the fact of the matter is, until you see for yourself, until you can prove in the immediacy of your own awareness, the validity of what I'm about to tell you, these concepts are of limited value. So the third takeaway is that yoga is a method and it's a practice. It's not a set of beliefs for us to dogmatically imbibe to make ourselves feel better. That's not the point. The point is to provide you, wherever you might be, whoever you are, um, with a set of techniques and tools that you can use now to get a firsthand direct experience of it. So that's what we teach in yoga. We teach meditation. And as you know, for those of you who have tried to meditate, it's not so easy. You know, you might sit there and suddenly the body will start to feel uncomfortable. Um, you might try to keep the mind quiet, but thoughts seem to surge up into the awareness despite yourself. So meditation is quite obviously a very nuanced endeavor. A lot of yoga is centered around perfecting that art. Let's say you managed to do that. Though. Let's say you practiced uh, meditation extensively. You practiced asana, which is postural yoga, techniques to bring your body into stillness. You've practiced pranayama, that is control of the life force through breath um, awareness or breath control. More accurately, to translate better, breath retention. And let's say you've learned how to still the various fluctuating of the mind. Okay, what will you discover? The yogis will say to you this, 
you will discover in your deepest meditation that you are not the body. The body is always changing. Much like nature, um, the body is not the changeless thing. Next, you will discover that you are not the mind. The mind, much like the body, much like nature, is always changing. So you are not the mind. And you go a little deeper and you go a little deeper and eventually you will come upon the one unchanging thing. And that thing, the yogis called Atman or the Atma, meaning the self. Self, capital S, by the way. Um, since this self is not the ego, you know, the ego is nothing more than a collection of thoughts that exist in the mind. And since you are not the mind, you are not in that same breath, any idea that you have about yourself. You are not who you think you are, you know. Um, and when you meditate deeply, you discover that beyond the mind, beyond the body, there is something. And that thing is so much more authentic and so much more valid than any experience of identity you had in the body and the mind. Some of you have already felt this. Maybe you've attended uh, an asana or yoga poses class. And at the end of the class, maybe an hour and a half of doing you know, very difficult shapes, you lay down on your back in what we call shavasana, corpse pose. And you lay down and your body was so tired that for a few moments, you were perfectly still. And in fact, you were so tired that for a few moments, your mind was perfectly quiet. There were a few delicious gaps in the dialogue of the incessant mind. And for a few moments at least, you were able to go past the body, past the mind, and touch something that was so much more real, so much more fulfilling, and so much more rewarding than any experience you had through the five senses or through any kind of ego gratification. That thing is your true self, the Atman. The fourth takeaway is that Atman and the true self is none other than God. So when Paul, the apostle in the Christian mystic tradition says, the kingdom of heaven is within, the yogis in 4000 BCE India were making the same claim. God isn't out there. God isn't a being in the sky keeping a naughty or nice list. Neither is God really the wind or the, the, the sun or the, the um, fire. Everything that you see outside is actually a metaphor for what's going on inside. So stop looking for gods or God in the outside world. Instead, start to connect with the gods and goddesses of your own psyche, the various forces of your own body. And when you go deep enough, you will discover that God has three properties. Sat, meaning it exists. Chid, meaning it's made of pure consciousness. And Ananda, meaning it's pure bliss. God is the blissful awareness of your own existence. And so God is not a noun. God is a verb. And these, my friends, I believe, are the most profound ideas from ancient India. I hope to see you in a class um, sometime this month. And I can't wait to share more with you. Om, peace, peace, peace. Have a beautiful day ahead.